Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 146 of Control the Controllables. I always love this episode, an opportunity for us to reminisce and go back and listen and talk through our learnings from all of our amazing guests that we've had on the show this year. So the Skopsky brothers, a big welcome back to Control the Controllables. Over to Dasha Kazetkina. So sit back and enjoy, and I'm going to pass you over to Jimmy Arias. To Fakula Gones. To Paul Anacone. To Luke Jensen. To Holger Rune. So Matt Little, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. Rohan Bupana. Tom Gullickson. Carl Mize. So here he is speaking live from Soto Tennis Academy. Dom Inglot, Fran Jones, Rajiv Ram, Iga Schwantek. So the Wimbledon Mixed Doubles Champions 2021 player and coach. Welcome to Control the Controllables. Louis Cahier, Dr. Jim Lair. So Nick Boliteri, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm always doing fine, baby. No sense complaining. Remember, excuses don't pay the bills. <laughs> and there there he is, Nick Boliteri. I, I, I dare you to not have a smile on your face as you as you listen to Coach Nick speak. And yeah, just hearing hearing all of those back over in the last few days going through this year's episodes. What an incredible year it's been for Control the Controllables. Uh, a big thank you to all of you out there that have been supporting us. And as ever, I have Vicky next to me. And what a year it's been. Oh, I've loved reminiscing the last few days, going back, listening to clips and listening to some of my favourite episodes. Nick Bollettieri is definitely up there. I, he makes me smile every time I listen to him. And Vicky does like speaking about her favourites. And I reckon we'll get to that later in the show. It was so hard. It really was. I still, I think I've got there though. I, I do think I've got my favourite now. She hasn't. She's still, <laughs> she's still deciding and she'll be umming and ahhing her way through. But we will get to that and hopefully she'll keep it concise when we get there. Uh, but that'll be coming to you later in the episode. Um, as we said when we first set this podcast up, uh, the aim was to educate, to energise and to entertain you guys firstly through the lockdown period and that's now moved into yeah who knows how long we'll go but uh, we very much are setting this show up this end of year review with that structure in mind so we'll be getting to all of our learnings all of our favorite episodes Um, but at this point I would also just like to mention the challenging year that we have all had 2021 we remain in a global pandemic the, the COVID times have hit many people hard. 
and I really hope everyone's doing okay from the quarantine time to the passing away of family members. I think we all have the same thing in common that there has been some real challenging times. Hope everyone's doing well and I really do hope that this podcast as well as many other great podcasts have helped you through some difficult times, sitting in the house, quarantining, not traveling quite as much as one used to do and I know Vicky for one is happy about that because I've been a little bit more home than usual over the over the last couple of years and the last thing that's been a challenge on our side and I'm sure that many of you can relate to this is is time you know and how do you find time to fit everything in and and finding a way of prioritizing things and we are certainly continuing to prioritize control the controllables bringing these amazing guests to you i think it has helped that you have been at home a lot more because um i know at the back end of this year you were starting to travel a lot more with the academy and um we certainly had a few stumbling blocks along the way trying to get podcasts recorded and edited um but we picked a few skills up along the way with that also that gives me an idea though i'm, I'm seeing social media and I'm seeing everybody flying off to Australia. And I have to say, I'm very jealous to see everybody going to what is my favorite Grand Slam out there. But maybe next time I travel, when I get one of those nice planes that have Wi-Fi on, maybe we can no. do maybe we could do <laughs> no. a podcast live from the air. You know, and that could be another We exclusive. had a hard enough time doing a, a live podcast at Sotheby's Tennis Academy, let alone, let alone that. We had our first live podcast back in April, was it, with uh, British doubles player Dom Inglot. Yeah, one of our many firsts of 2021, our first live podcast, as you mentioned, with Dom Inglot, episode 107. If you could have seen us setting up the tables on the first hard court at Soto Tennis Academy. Socially distanced. <laughs> socially distanced, trying to get the microphones working. And yeah, I'm not sure it 100% worked as alive as such but but it certainly did as a podcast i think dom inglot was one of our many amazing guests came across so well spoke so well and loved it so much that he's actually set his own podcast up now has he all on the back all on the back of his control the controllables so dom if you're listening i hope you're going to give us a shout out for the inspiration <laughs> for your fantastic podcast as well and he'll be very good he spoke so well and in fact he, he spoke so well that the listeners who tuned into the zoom who were meant to be asking him questions at the end you guys were like two hours and we ran out of time for them to ask any questions <laughs> that was yeah didn't work but i can totally see why he he would uh, do a really good show for sure in fact i think it's his episode was really good one for players he had so many good messages and here's a clip of one of the things that he'd learnt from U.S. college and how it had helped his mindset. If things weren't going my way, I would have a hissy fit. I'd throw the toys out of the pram. And if I'm being brutally honest, I'd probably give up in a lot of matches because the mindset I had was if I'm giving everything I've got and I'm losing, then I'm a loser. And yeah. I don't want to be a loser. So therefore, I will give myself the excuse of saying that I gave up at the end and that's why I lost and what college tennis taught me was you're a loser if you don't give it everything that you've got outcome is not the important thing it's your mindset and what you put into something and if you're not giving everything 
that's when you're a loser. And there you go, control the controllables. It comes up everywhere. And I find myself in most episodes nodding my head, just thinking how it feeds into control the controllables. It did with that great message from Dom. It also did on our other podcast live that we did. We used social media channels to actually host a live show when we when we ran the Progress Tour back in October, where we had the executive chairman of Gymshark, Steve Hewitt, who was also episode 64 on the show last year, and our performance director, Carl Mize, who they took questions from the audience, the live audience, but also took questions online. There were some amazing awards and Gymshark vouchers that were given out. And once again, those messages were very much around control the controllables and and doing all of these things in your power on, on on a daily basis. And a big thank you to Steve and Carl for that, because that was a big standout on the year as well. Another first we had was our first reigning Grand Slam champion on the show, Iga Svontek. And that was an interesting one as well because she was at the academy training for three weeks or so, getting ready for the clay court season. But you had to go home and and do um, the episode on Zoom to keep um, because of the social distancing rules. I think I'd struggle to do one that's not on Zoom. I've got I'm so I'm so used to the Zoom now and I think you know speaking to all of these big celebrities and big names in the sport I might get a little bit nervous if it's face to face and and I think with Iga she was the reigning Roland Garros champion at the time. I think that one thing that certainly went in in my favor and maybe Iga's as well is we got to know each other the few days before She's a lovely young girl and we'd actually spoken a lot about her tennis and her career beforehand. So it felt much easier to go into that comfortable conversation. You know, she spoke in depth about how she felt. You know, we all think of the we all think of the holy grail of winning a grand slam and then everything just goes away and just vanishes you know and that's what we're all fighting for as players coaches and parents whereas actually here we had it a 19 year old just won her first grand slam and she talked about how her life had changed not just for the better but also all of the anxieties the difficulties that went with because of the expectation because of the expectation that she had on her on her head at that point and i thought it was also really interesting when she talked so much about daria who is her sports psychologist who she travels with pretty much 52 weeks a year and the fact that she's got to be one of the first professional tennis players to travel with a sports psychologist and it was fantastic to have Daria on the show as well. Yeah it was. My other favourite which was a slightly different one we did this year was the Brits at Wimbledon. It was the preview to this year's tournament and we had 10 former and current British players talking about their experiences and some really funny stories came out. My favourite actually was Lee Charles, who was saying at the back end of one of his matches, he was playing on one of the outside courts and he ran for a ball, slipped over and as he went down, he could hear his dad shouting out, get get up! <laughs> so that was a really interesting one and good for your good practice for your interviewing skills making sure that all 10 people were getting a chance to speak and <laughs> I think it was it was relatively easy because they they bounced off each other so well and I think that the bigger challenge was keeping 
people into some sort of structure and not going off on tangents and talking about nights out and talking about all of these different things because I think they were all so familiar with with each other yeah. and and I think my my big one on that and, and I had this question in my head before that and I'd like to give Kyle Spencer a shout out for his eye he gave me the idea of, of that episode but I've always had in my head is Wimbledon good for British tennis, you know, and I think the the obvious answer to that is yes. However, just listening to these Brits and talking about the challenges of being British at that time of the year, maybe how people drop their standards because they don't have to be ranked so high to get wild cards. You know, I'm of the opinion that maybe Wimbledon hasn't always been the best thing for British tennis. Um, without doubt, it's the best tournament in the world. Um, so that sounds a bit silly saying that. But I'll just leave that question for you. Send us your thoughts in. Is Wimbledon good for British tennis? What were you saying about tangents? <laughs> I've got plenty of tangents, don't don't you worry about that, but uh, hopefully you might edit some of them out. <laughs> well, speaking of Wimbledon, um, we also had a, a few exclusives on the show this year, but one of them was with Desiree Kravchuk and Neil Skupski, who we spoke to just after they won the mixed doubles this year at Wimbledon. And that was a really interesting one, because Desiree had just won the French Open mixed doubles with Joe Salisbury. So you had them both on the show and your question was, you know, who is she going to choose to play with um, next? I'm fascinated by this point and uh, the spotlight goes on to Des for the next couple of minutes because winning the French Open with Joe Salisbury. My first question is why would you not continue playing with Joe Salisbury at Wimbledon three weeks later? I think that's the question for Joe. I mean, um, so you Joe dumped you? I think. Well, I mean, technically yes, but <laughs> um, oh, no. Satisfying. That's all the more satisfying. You know what? I that's literally what I looked forward to was just okay. We're playing Joe in the finals. We're gonna beat him because I want to prove a point. <laughs> so, so then, so then the next question, which I'm sure this is an easy answer. Who are you going to be playing with at the US Open? I'm playing with Joe. What are you, why is everyone shaking their heads? <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you feel about that, Neil? Oh, God. Uh, I mean, it was a, a tough one to take, really, isn't it? I mean, she gets dumped by Joe, and then we went together, and she went back to Joe. It's, I mean, it's amazing, but... <laughs> Where, where's, where's the respect I, I, around here? <laughs> Can we agree that you guys are playing Aussie Open 2022? Can we like? Can oh, we, it's a lot of pressure. You know, like I think. So what? Need... I'm gonna be going back and forth with Joe and Neil. I mean, geez, this is like. Yeah, it's tough. Hopefully, we can get Desiree to play Wimbledon next year to try and defend our title. But we'll have yeah, to wait. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm already agreeing to that. Let's go. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> so there it's we on, go, Dan. It's on record. Control the controllables exclusive. I can't help but feel she was bullied into that a little bit. <laughs> but it's an interesting one because she then went on to win the US Open mixed doubles with Joe again, having beaten Joe Salisbury in the final. So he's made all three finals. She's won all three finals. So who do you think she's going to play with? I don't know if she'll stick to that promise about Wimbledon if she plays she Aussie. Will. She will, but she'll play with Joe in Australia. I'm, I'm convinced of that. And yeah, it's not really been a story that's been picked up that much. She's going for the mixed doubles Grand Slam, yeah. you know, and, and, I, and I don't know the ins and outs of this, but I, I can't imagine that's been done 
too often. Maybe Martina Navratilova, who seems to have won a, a, a hell of a lot of Grand Slam events in in her time. But yeah, I think her and Joe uh, seem to have that have that partnership. I think it it is an amazing story. It was it was so nice for me to be involved in in that banter. You know, the, the they were the, good fun together. Great fun and banter of, and then we spoke to Joe Salisbury about the same thing. And you know, it's so lovely to see that human side of these of these sporting stars who are who are winning Grand Slam titles. And, and talking of talking of sporting stars, I think you know the Australian Open is something that's a hot topic once again. You know, poor Craig Tiley and his crew that are having to deal with all of the quarantine issues and the challenges. And will Novak Djokovic play? And has he been double vaccinated? And that was an unbelievable exclusive that was just dropped in. You know, as I'm talking to him in my son's bedroom and he just drops in that if you're not double vaccinated, the conditions will be different in Australia. And, you know, that was that was then picked up by some national newspapers in the UK. The rules have slightly changed since then. But to have someone of his stature come on to the podcast and give us an exclusive like that really was another fantastic moment. It was. And to move in now, I think, into the educational side, this is your area. I think I love a good story, but you really like the learning that you're getting from the podcast. What would you say are your kind of main key takeaways from this year? I know there's been so many, but if you could bring, bring it down to a few. It would be really, it's really hard. And, th- and this, this, was a, this was a big challenge to do this because I've honestly learned so much from all 54 episodes and and to then go right what what are the key messages to take through and we've tried to pull some of the messages out um i i, I think there's quite a few messages that we're going to leave out there because otherwise this podcast will be five or six hours <laughs> and i'm sure that you will all have your own but the first one that that i that i picked out was it was the year of emma Raducanu, and i think if you mentioned 2021 certainly to a British person, but I would imagine around the world when we go back to to that day, New York, New York City. It didn't matter where you were, you stopped, you watched that match with Leila Fernandez. You know, I was having friends text me who have never watched a tennis match before, who were texting me saying, "Come on, who's going to win? Who's going to win?" And it was, it was incredible. I I was in an apartment with Evan Hoyt in Portugal. You know, we made a, a meal around it, and it was it, like I say, Emma Raducanu stole everyone's heart last year. So to have the opportunity to have her childhood coach coached her between the ages of nine and 13, you know, pretty informative years come on in Alistair Filmer. And one of the big takeaways I took was with Emma and what he spoke about with Emma, even at that age, and this is the same with all of these amazing champions, is just how intrinsically motivated they are. You know, they're, they're doing the extra. It's not just ticking a box and then getting out of there. It's about doing the extra. He talked in good detail about this. And if you haven't listened to, to this episode, episode 134 with Alistair Filmer, I would I would really recommend that. There's so much educational information in there on 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 developing a champion from such a young age. But I think one of my one of my favourites on the on the educational side of things was Facu Lagones. Coach of the year. ATP Coach of the Year, coach of Cameron Norrie, a big friend of the of the podcast. And I, I wanted to ask him, you know, what 
what was the real secret and what has been the real secret in producing so many tennis players out of Argentina? There's just so many players on the same area. They all go to Buenos Aires and there's such all the former good players, players from the 80s and the 90s, they all stay in tennis and they're all coaches, most of them. So obviously you have a lot of people playing tennis, a lot of good athletes and a lot of good people teaching them, you know? Yeah. And um, a lot of competition there and also a lot of good examples of how things are need to be done to, to get to the, to the top level. And then there's basically no federation. I know now they're doing a much better job. It's all the former players running it. Okay. But before, very little support. They, they don't own any courts, any gym. So you have to do it on your own, which sometimes I think it, it helps players because it makes you more hungry and you have to fight for everything harder you don't get rackets you don't get anything you have to pay for everything so when you're in the when you're in the crunch you're in the deep in the third i think that helps you to be a little more clutch or a little bit tougher so i think it's a it's a good combination of kind of finding ways but also a lot of people showing you how it's done i don't think we need to go any further we've now learned what we need to do in all of these federations that are that are struggling well, you know? yeah a, lo- a lot of players not all of them, but most of the Argentinian players that made it, they either borrow money from a sponsor and they have they paid it back when they were top 100. Uh, yeah, they go in debt or some a friend of them helped them. So, you know, when when it's your money on the line or someone else's money, you're probably going to fight harder and you're going to work harder. You take it more more serious. So I think that that kind of helps. Do you think that there's some players... That like even if you go from your time, and I know you were kind of Diego Schwartzman's age, you know, grew up playing with Diego. Is there some players that you think didn't make it because they didn't have the financial backing, or do you think that if you're good enough, you find a way? I think yeah. If if you really want it, if you're good enough, you, you can find a way. It, it might take you two or three more years than the rest, because you I don't know you don't have a a team around you, you don't have a person traveling with you 24-7. But I think if you're really hungry and, and you, you really put in the work and you believe in yourself, I think money shouldn't be an issue unless you just cannot travel anywhere. But I think, um, yeah, I know, I know guys that made it with, with nothing, pretty much. They just play futures in Argentina, 15-20 futures, a few challengers. They borrow a little money. They went to Europe for six months. They stay there. One And once you go get to two, 200 to 50 then you can you have a real shot but yeah I, I think that's that's an excuse uh, not having the the money to make it and there's the little reminder for me of my croaky voice which seemed to <laughs> lasted months <laughs> the month, so I apologise to all the listeners I don't remember it quite sounding as bad as that so, so big apologies but yeah my, my big takeaway it's, it's my favourite message it's, it's my big message that I get from so many of these episodes, and it's that ultimate ownership. You know how many how many of us look to excuse and justify, and and there you've got it, the ATP Coach of the Year. You know if you want it badly enough, you'll you'll find a way. You know you'll find a way. Nobody would have put Cameron Norrie as world number twelve. You know, and he certainly found his way to get there and had an incredible year. That was mentioned actually in quite a few episodes, really owning your tennis. I know Alistair Filmer brought it up as well. Borna Koric, Francesca Jones. Chorich. Oh, I've done it again. Chorich, we were told off about this and I'm still saying it wrong. Borna Chorich. 
um, a great episode and Francesca Jones um, who actually we'll hear from later on one more I'll give you one more before we move to um, my stories <laughs> well I'll do you a deal I'll give you one more choice under educate if I can have one more choice and then I'll steal one back for energize okay uh, Matt Little uh, Andy Murray's S&C coach everyone in Great Britain will know Matt Little um, he was amazing awesome episode soft skills versus hard skills you know he's been working with Andy for 14 years and a big question that you asked him was how he's managed to keep that relationship so fresh um, time apart <laughs> you know say rest same thing you know breaks um, I like to think that I, I've had reasonable feel for situations time when to open my mouth time when to take a little back step and listen more. I know generally how Andy's feeling without him having to say something, um, you know, in any situation, because we've been together that long. I feel like even if we're in a meeting, something gets said, I'll know how he's going to feel. Uh, we're on a court, something happens. I know how he's going to feel. So, so because I, most of the time, I get it wrong, you know, but, but most of the time I feel like I can kind of negotiate around things and then recognise moments where, where, which are coachable moments, where the wind, where the door opens, yep. and a question gets asked, or there's a problem which I think I've got an answer to. That's when I go in heavy. I pick those moments, and the rest of the time, I skate around, listen, watch, and just try and try and help feel through situations. I think in in some ways, I think I can help the rest of the team with that a little bit as well, um, in being that kind of. Kind of absorbing different parts of the team and their emotions and how they're feeling about different things and how Andy's feeling. I think because I've been been there for a while, yeah, I feel like I can do that quite well. Yeah. So which is which is a strange thing because it's not a it's not an official role. You know, it's not a job title that. Um, but actually, I think it's quite an important skill set to, when you're working in a team to be it's that soft skills, that can, isn't it? It's that yeah. it's the soft skills that yeah. that not everyone has. <laughs> no, no, not everybody has them, you know. And the thing is, and I talk about it, and I'm not shamelessly plugging the book, I promise. But, um, you know, there are people in life whose hard skills are so unbelievably good that people will put up with them being around anyway, even if they've got no personal skills whatsoever, because they're so good at what they do. It's like, well, look, you know, I, I, need, I need that person, you know, so even if they, they, disrupt the team or even if they're you know they, they cause some stress actually they're so good at what they do i need them around yep. um but for the for the vast majority of the rest of us who are you know good at what we do but you know not necessarily it's kind of you've got to find a way around situations and and not be likable not be a sycophant but get along to go along as well you know because players aren't going to put up with you very long if they if they don't think you're good to have around and um you know it's funny so many people said to me about you know how andy is on the court you know look what you know why well if he was like that with me or if he ever said something like that to me on the court i'd tell him where yeah. to shove it and i'd walk off yeah. and all of those type things you know if he was displaying those behaviors to me i wouldn't put up with that and i and that's absolutely fine i don't ever react to that it's, everyone has their their way but if we did do that as a team if we did always react emotionally then it's not going to work in the team environment being that way, you know, again, probably with a, 
a junior player, um, I could be more kind of dogmatic like that and say, right, I'm not putting up with that behaviour, this isn't good, whatever. Um, but actually, you know, as a team, we've spoken about that side of things a lot. What, what a guy uh, Matt is, do you know what I mean? I, I think I would have Matt in my team, even if he wasn't an SNC coach, just as like, as just someone to just bring team morale up, someone yeah. to just, uh, he just seems to be someone who really is the glue within a team. And, and I think it, it shouldn't be ever underestimated how amazing those skills are. Now, I've had firsthand how good Matt is as an SNC coach. So you add in you add in his hard skills of what he's like as an SNC coach on top of his soft skills and his personal skills, and you've really truly have an international class person that obviously has worked with with the world's best for many for many 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 years. And I thank Matt for coming on to the show and sharing it with such insight. So is it my my last one? Your last one. So my last one. It's. It's two messages in one, and it's and it was said by a, f- a few people um, over over the course of of the year. But control the controllables, and and high standards and low expectations, and and throughout the episode with Alexa Gorachi, this came out quite strongly. There was also Daria Abrahamovic, uh, the sports psychologist of Igor Viontek, spoke about this in a lot of detail as well. But this was a little short clip, and I think I like this the most because she actually talks about controlling the controllables. Is it a benefit or is it a burden to have <laughs> parents as tennis coaches? Yeah, I mean, looking back now, I think it's a huge benefit. But when I was in the moment then, I would be like, it's a burden, this sucks, okay. like... You know, it's hard to see the big picture, though, when you're that young and you're growing up. My dad, my parents were so hard on me. You know, my dad expected so much. Um, I'd get second place in a tournament and he would pull over the side of the road and throw away my trophy and be like, this isn't good enough, you know. And so I always had this high expectation of like, okay, I need like, this is like what I really need to do. I need to be number one. You know, I need to be the best at what I'm doing. And it's funny because, yeah, looking back now, I'm like, I'm so glad my dad pushed me. There's, I can't even tell you how many times I was like, I'm quitting. I'm done. This is it. You know, I would lose a match and he'd take away my cell phone back then, you know? And I'm like, what other 14 year old girl is getting their cell phone taken away by their dad when they lose a tennis match, you know? So, you know, looking back, I'm like, okay, I wish he wouldn't done some of those things, but I'm glad he did because he instilled this, I don't know, this, this like hard work mentality for me that I look back and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm really happy. I, I did that. And I worked that hard. Well, being tough on the results, because I think this is a fascinating subject yeah. it, it, because you'll obviously you'll have, you'll have different trails of thought on this, mm-hmm. you know, the, the toughness coming on the result or the toughness coming on the work ethic, I guess the concern that I would have with with some some players, and I see it as when the parents are so tough on the result, they, yeah. le- they learn to hate tennis. That it potentially brings mental health problems down the mm-hmm. line. It, they they have a negative association with the sport. Yeah. Whereas if the it was tough- kind of both, it was like both for me. I mean, he was tough on both, but then at around fifteen, 
um, sorry to interrupt you. Or no, I was like 13. I actually got sent, I was started being homeschooled and I got sent up to a family friend's house up in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. And I lived with them and he was a, he's a financial um, investor, has his own firm. And then he also was like a football coach and he specialized in like mental toughness, stuff like that. And so as a 13 year old, I started going up there and, and it was the best thing that my parents ever did actually was trusting someone else because I needed to get at that age. I needed to kind of spread my wings and get away from my parents yep. because it was just going to be tough for me to kind of grow. And, and I was wanting to um, rebel. And so I went up there and I got, he instilled this like work ethic in me. And it was, I learned so much. It's funny because your podcast is, con- un, you know, control the uncontrollables. Control the controllables. Control the controllables. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of the first things he instilled in me actually was what can you control? And it, yeah. so much of it was, you can control, you know, your work ethic, how hard you fight. You can control um, your like being positive, always was being positive, you know, mm-hmm. and working hard. So that, for me, it was like learning those things being like, okay, if I work really hard and I stay positive, like good things will come. You know, I just have to trust myself and believe in myself and you never know what, whatever that, whatever happens, happens, you know, and just believe that, you know, they, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty um, religious. And so I just really believe that God has a plan for all of us. And I believe yeah. that like, whatever is meant to happen is hap- is going to happen. And and he has a plan. And I mean, that was one of my big things is I, I tore my ACL mm. when I was 23 or 24. And um, that was a huge changing moment shift in my career. At, at, after that, I really was like, do I want to do this or not? I contemplated being done. And I decided I was like, well, I want to be a healthy human being, number one. So I'm going to have to rehab my knee. I'm going to have to get surgery. But I'm, I really want to give this everything I have. I don't want to like hold back anything, you know. And when I came back on tour after that, I was like a new. I had such a different mindset of like, you never know when it's your last moment, when it's your last match, when it's your last practice. Like, just give everything that you have. I think she's brilliant. <laughs> I don't know if I said it at the time. I think I did, but I would have loved to have had her as my doubles partner. <laughs> Can you imagine the pep talk she'd be giving you in between points? But isn't it interesting that she didn't have that when she was young, you know? And I think, you know, she had people in her life that were setting the standards, setting the high standards, you know? And then as she's gone on, and that's what I love about control the controllables because an expectation is is not a controllable. So lower that. What is a controllable is is are your standards, your your standards of warm ups, your standards of what time you go to bed, your standards of efforts that you put in. And I think she talked about that. I actually challenged her on it a couple of times. It's a great episode to listen to. But another amazing guest, episode one three three for anyone who wants to listen to that one again. But before we lose everyone, let's move into energize because. The amount of times I've gone into episodes, tired, long days, three children, morning wife. I I, I could feel that coming. (laughs) And I always, always come out of the chats feeling highly energised. And and that alone is is a privilege for me to be able to to have that in my life. And and I really hope that these guests are energising you as the listeners as well. And I think for energizing the best guests are often the most inspirational and i think marcus daniel 
really comes under that. Incredible. Absolutely. And we, we, we talk about not everyone is going to be motivated all the time. Uh, however, having having a level of discipline, but also a level of purpose and really truly connecting to your purpose and your reason will get you out of bed in the morning. It's the best alarm clock that you can ever have. And Marcus Daniel has hit the absolute jackpot on this. You know, he's doing something that's bigger now than his tennis. Every tennis match that he wins means more than just being able to text his mates on WhatsApp and say that he's won. And I think if we all listen to Marcus Daniel, we all take his story on board and we all act in the way that he does, the world would be a much, much better place. Sure, yeah, this is uh, something I've been involved with actually I think since about 2015 or 2016, basically since the first year that I managed to save some money on tour because it is a, it's, it's sort of an unfortunate truth that tennis is a very self-centered sport and that's never sat perfectly with me. So when I had a chance to try and even the scales a little bit, I jumped on it and discovered effective altruism uh, in, in 2015 and it just resonated completely with me, the idea of doing the most good possible with your resources. So for that, that for me at the time meant a little bit of money that I could give and being able to advocate for these ideas that I felt strongly about. Uh, and yeah, so, and that pledge grew until um, last year, I gave a little over 10% this year at the start of the year, I made the giving what we can pledge, which is pledging 10% minimum of your income to the most effective charities in the world for the rest of your life feels really, really good. It's been a, a, a fundamentally good shift for me in my career to feel like I'm playing for something bigger than myself. And it's also really cool. It means that every time I step on a match court, every time I win a match, I feel great for myself, but I also feel great because I know that at the end of the year, I'm going to donate a little more and change or save the lives of a bunch of humans or animals or improve the environment, that sort of thing. And yeah, and then, and then last year when COVID hit, uh, and like I said earlier, we, we lost our income and we lost all certainty of income in the future. I was wondering how I could increase my own positive impact on the world. And I didn't feel like I could give more money at the time, uh, but I knew I could be a better advocate. So that led me to the idea of starting an organization where I could try and bring more athletes on board and, and try to spread these ideas of giving effectively and, and doing the most good with every dollar as possible. And that was that that was the conception of high impact athletes. And we launched uh, early December last year and, and actually it's it's grown rapidly. It's it's been amazing. Uh, you know, two months later we had eight HIA athletes in the quarterfinals of of the Australian Open and, and that was just incredibly special. And now uh, we're representing I think probably around 15 to 20 different sports and lots of tennis players are on board and it just keeps to be, keeps growing exponentially. And, and I'm super excited about the, uh, the potential impacts that we can have on the world as we grow. Well, well done. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it, no, no, seriously, Marcus, it's, it really is. And I think for, for those listening, I mean, we'll have all of the links on, on this podcast and it's certainly got me thinking for the last few days. And I think, if we are living in a world where we're all doing what we can to give the best that we possibly can with the resources that we have, what what a world that would be. 
Well, as well as giving him an extra reason for playing, I think it gives us all an extra reason to be cheering him on. Yeah, it's like it's like he's Superman, and and and, and I don't want everyone to get scared off thinking you have to have such a strong purpose. Of course, it helps, and Marcus has taken till quite late in his career to get to that point. Whereas in episode one hundred and twenty-eight, with Arthur Ferry, the young British player, his purpose is just to have fun. And what a lovely, refreshing way to look at your tennis. And what's the one best bit of advice that she gave you when you were younger that potentially you didn't realise it was a good piece of advice until you started to get into your late teens and move into adulthood? I wouldn't have one in particular. I would I would say, like, the fact that she never put any pressure on me and always, like, made sure I was having fun whilst playing tennis, yeah. that was super important. And that I didn't realise how much improvement is linked to having fun on court and enjoying the game. Very good. Can you give us an example? Give us an example of how, how do you make somebody have fun? Uh, play a type of game style that they enjoy. I mean, for me, especially with my personality, it's very, very key that I enjoy playing. Otherwise I tend to play a very monotonous, like a monotonous game and that's yeah. where I don't excel and I don't have fun either. So um, for me, it's yeah, always being trying to be creative and do things that you're not necessarily comfortable doing. Um, not always playing the same, the same ball, same game style. That's for me anyway. I love that bit when he says, I didn't realise how much improvement was linked to having fun on court. I think there's so many people that don't link the two either, including probably us both when we were younger and, um, and a lot of players and parents now. No, absolutely. Uh, Arthur, if you're ever looking for a coach, you're someone who I'd love to travel with, you know, to have someone that that gets life, that gets the connection between life and tennis, you know, abs- absolutely brilliant and well done to his family and coaches around him. And our last one for energising, Francesca Jones. What, a, what an energiser from the moment that our video call linked in. I just felt like I just wanted to just shout from the rooftops, wanted to go out there, smack tennis balls around. So what was what was your favourite bit of that? Because there were so many energising and inspiring parts of that episode. Well, I can't mention it without ruining the story. Um, so I'll let Francesca Jones tell it. But it Can was... I guess? No, oh, no, because you Through can't actions. say... You... I will confirm the action that he's doing after we've listened to the <laughs> to the clip. But yes, you are correct. Um, but yeah, you asked her to share one story that's had the biggest impact on her from traveling. And she told us this one from when she played two 15Ks in Argentina. I went to uh, a village called uh, Villa Maria. So it's uh, in Argentina. Uh, and I couldn't quite believe where I found myself and uh, we got to the airport which was three hours away and this taxi driver we'd, we'd organised a taxi driver to pick us up and of course in, in, in Argentina you know a, a three hour taxi is the equivalent of a 10, a ten, ten minute taxi in London um, and this man picked us up and you know when you go to these places I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I speak Spanish but if, if I didn't I'd be even more tentative around these people um, 
and he's picking us up and I'm thinking, you know, I really don't know who this guy is, but he has a quite a humbled look about him, a very welcoming, welcoming face and, and seemed really excited that, you know, these two uh, foreigners were going to be in his, uh, in his village. And so, anyway, he drives us to the hotel and I was like, look how much I owe you. Fair amount. I paid him for the, for the trip and then, you know, he says, well, well, when are you playing? And I was like, oh, you know, maybe Tuesday. I got there about four days before. Well, you're not going to go to the club before, he says. And I said, well, yeah, we'll go every day to train. And then when I play my match, I'll play my match. He's like, all right, okay, well, just message me when, you, when you're going to be playing and um, I'll take you to train and I'll take you to the match. So I messaged him. I thought, okay, let's, let's give it a try. I wanted to have faith in, in the person. I didn't want to judge. Uh, 9 a.m. he takes me to the club he's like so when do you finish practice uh, in about an hour and a half okay I'll, I'll take you back so finish my practice at about 11 and uh, he's there to pick me up takes me back to the hotel and I was like okay we're going back this this evening so uh, hopefully we'll see you around he's like okay what time are you picking up same thing happens every single day every single day I won the tournament so we got to the final and on the day of the final he was there five minutes before we'd agreed took me so when I finished the final he says um I'm so happy for you. Like, uh, it's been a pleasure. And I said, okay, well, you know, how much do I owe you for all the trips? And we're talking about 10-minute trips there and back. And he goes, owe me? It's my pleasure. You don't owe me anything. And so at this point, I'm thinking, hold on. I I, I feel a bit uncomfortable here. Like, I, I should pay him for these trips. And, and I'm not sure if he's, if, I, if I'm being too trusting here and something might happen later where he, and um, he's like, I, I don't want a penny off you. So I said, okay, well, let me let me take you and your family out to dinner because that's the least I can do. I've won the tournament, you know. Uh, I want to take you to a nice dinner. We'd found this one restaurant based on a vineyard that was phenomenal, and I took them there. And we finished, and he said, that's the best meal of my life. And it was him, his two daughters, and his mum. Unfortunately, his wife had passed away from cancer. And, uh, and to this day, we're talking about three years now, um, I message him or he messages me uh, once a quarter to check in. Wow. And, um, yeah, I I think the relationship, I mean, I have goosebumps now, but if one day there's something I could do to move his family to a, to a better place, I, I will for sure. I think that story gave both of us goosebumps when we heard it the first time. I was about to say, anybody anybody not got goosebumps listening, listening to that story? <laughs> And yet the driving action you were giving me, yeah, you got the taxi story. It had to be that one. It was so lovely. Well, you are a sucker for an emotional story. So I am. You know, that one, I knew that that one had got you good. It is an incredible <laughs> story. It says so much about Fran Jones and and everything that she stands for. So now, now the bit that you've been waiting for, Vicky, because it's the storytellers yes. and... Oh my goodness, we've had some amazing storytellers on the on the show. And so which which one are you going to start with? Mm, I think we're going to start with Paul Anacone um, talking about Roger Federer um, when he played Andy Murray in the final of Wimbledon in 2012. And you asked him what it was like to be on the winning side that day. The biggest goal we had, and I don't believe too much in result-oriented goals for players at that stage, but when we started working together, Roger wanted to get back to number one, and he wanted to win another major. And so that so that day, that happened. He won, and then a few weeks later, I think he became number one again. So that was great. But I just remember him being, you know, he's always very calm. You know, I know he's nervous inside, but he's always very calm. 
and, and he just knew Andy was a great player and he knew he had to serve well and he knew he had to do a good job taking advantage of Andy's second serve. Yep. And Andy started off really well playing really good tennis. And I did Andy win the first set and then Roger yep. won the next three, maybe. Yep. Is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. He did, yeah. And so, but I just remember again, Roger. Oh, and I never felt, I never felt any sense of urgency or panic. And, and I remember, you know, when they came in on the rain delay, I forget what the score was and Roger sitting down and uh, I said, so what do you think, pal? And, and, you know, and he was just like, he was very, you know, he said, I just got to get a little bit clearer on, on the second server turns. I got to get the first strike in more often. And he just went through like two or three simple things, really totally unemotional, just about what the match was. And then he went out there and just did it. And that's kind of the beauty of Roger Federer is that he, he makes it very simplistic and clear. And then he just goes and tries to do it, you know? And, and for me, I felt horrible for it because I'm a huge Andy Murray fan. And obviously with my history working at the LTA for four years, you know, I, I, it was hard for me to watch Andy not win until he did win a major, you know, because I, I'm a huge fan, one of the hardest workers that's ever played the game, unbelievably gifted. So that was rough to see um, for for me as Andy's, you know, as a fan and friend of Andy, but I was so thrilled for Roger to see him come back and win that. And um, it brought a ton of joy to my heart. And and then actually I was there a few weeks later when Andy got the gold medal from him in the that's finals right. of the Olympics yeah, at the right. All England Club. So that was a, that was a great day for Andy to win gold. And Roger was, you know, disappointed, but so thrilled and proud to have a silver. And he's good about the perspective stuff. Roger gets that, you know, and then, yeah. and then didn't Andy go on, did he win the U S open right after uh, yeah, that that's too? Him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was the beginning of his um, solidification into greatness. That guy, I mean, Paul Anacone, I mean, talk about silk, you know, just everything, the calmness, the assuredness, the Owen Wilsonness for anyone who watches Hollywood films, he reminds me so much of Owen Wilson. The voices, the voice is almost identical. It just, I, I could have listened for hours. I could have listened to his stories for hours. Yet he somehow made me feel as if we were on the level just talking about tennis. And he has coached Pete Sampras, Roger Federer, Tim Henman. Taylor Fritz you know he really was and is an incredible coach and 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 what I just love about it is an incredible human being as well who's happy to share these these insights and once again I just feel very privileged that we're in that position to have those conversations oh it's out and out yeah one of my favorites um and the link to Pete Sampras as well is another one which I think is probably number one. Um, the episode with Tom Gullickson. Um, oh, that got me. That really did. Get the Kleenexes ready. Yeah, it was... Um, he had some unbelievable stories. It was very emotional. He talked about his late brother, Tim Gullickson, who was Pete Sampras's coach. And actually, it was Paul Anacone who took over um, when Tim fell ill. Um, for me, this is a, a must-listen episode. Here's Captain Gully. I don't think coaches and academies and federations spend enough time in skill development. Yep. When you look at Federer, you know, he goes to a court. If you, if you compare him to a bow hunter, okay, he goes out bow hunting and he's got 20 arrows in his quiver. 
And if one arrow he misses with one, he grabs another arrow and shoots another arrow. So when he walks on a tennis court, he's got 20 arrows. This is something I learned from my late brother, Tim. He was big on this <laughs> quiver thing. He goes, you know, I want you to have a lot of arrows. I want you to have more arrows than the guy that you're playing against. And, you know, Timmy coached Sampras for five years and got him winning Wimbledon every year. Pete's record before he started working with Tim was two first-round losses and one second-round loss. Mm -hmm. He had no clue how to play on grass before he met Tim Gullickson. And, you know, Tim played me every day of his life. So nobody was better at returning a lefty serve because I had a good lefty serve. Timmy played me every day. He had a great backhand return. So, you know, Timmy taught him how to return serve against a lefty. And uh, he won Wimbledon seven out of the next eight years. So not 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 a bad not a bad uh, result there for, for young Pete Sampras and uh, you know Timmy passed away at 44 in May of 96 and Pete actually put his uh... take your time yeah Pete uh, put his first Wimbledon trophy in the casket. And he said, Tim not only taught me how to be a Wimbledon champion, taught me how to be a winner in life. And Wimbledon was so touched by that. And obviously, you know, they took the trophy out and gave it to the family, Rosemary and the kids, Eric and Megan. Wimbledon, who's not in the habit of make, making Wimbledon trophy replicas, they made Pete a replica of that trophy. Wow. Because they were so touched by that. What an amazing! So thank you for sharing that story. And in and, and in terms of in terms of Tim, mm -hmm. and what I think some sometimes in life we we don't realize what we have until we lose it. And right. and 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 you know we're talking now twenty five years. You know, right. and, and how how much of an impact has Tim been? for you over the last 25 years through not being here and, and the lessons that he taught you and, and your relationship that you obviously have had. It's also been so special. Yeah. Well, I still miss him every day. Um, think about him a lot. And, uh, you know, there were kind of over 900 people at his funeral. So he obviously wasn't, you know, there's some people you meet, that are real impact players. And, you know, Timmy, Timmy had a real positive impact. You know, he was, he was a hell of a player. He was a great competitor and he didn't have that many arrows in his quiver, yeah. but you know, he would win his matches eight, six in the fifth. He beat Ramirez one, one year at court two at Wimbledon eight, six in the fifth. He took out Johnny Mack in nice. 79, uh, four, two and four on, on wow. court, court two and uh i had lost to johnny mack in the third round that year and so timmy's playing johnny mack uh in the round of 16 on court two he's playing great he always played great against lefties you know he's up six four six two five one you know just toying with him five two five three five four Serving for the match at 5-4, 15-40. Oh. 
he serves a second serve and he stays back. And he was a servant volleyer of the highest order. Stays back. Mac hits that little bunt backhand return that he used to hit that block kind of bunt. Timmy takes a short ball, rips the approach, comes in, knocks off the volley, wins like six, four in the, in the, in the third set. And, um, People go nuts. Obviously, McEnroe was a second seed, I think, yep. that year. And court two, of course, was called the graveyard court because yep. the seed didn't like playing there. And uh, Timmy goes in the press room after the match, and he goes, nobody beats the Gully Brothers back-to-back. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. The moment of 2021 that was for me, and I'll never forget looking at Gully in the eyes as he as he talked to me about his late brother Tim and the intimacy, the intensity, the the emotion. And the the first time I ever told anyone back, I think it was later that day, and it might have been you, Vicky, or it might have been to somebody else on that day. And the emotion just filled up in me and I had tears in my eyes again. And when we're talking about storytellers, the the ability to take someone on that journey with them is is just is just such a an amazing skill. And and I have to share a bit of a funnier story on Gully as well. He uh, I'd just come off the court. This was a few weeks after and he gave me a call and he just started telling me a story straight away. He's like, Dan, it's, it's Gully here. How, how's, how's things? And I said, yeah, yeah, great, great. How, how are you doing? And he went on for about five minutes and told me this most amazing, beautiful story. And then at the end, he said, anyway, um, you're now in, in the Fog Club, Friends of Gully. And Jim Lair, Dr. Jim Lair, who he just told the story about, is is agreed to come onto your onto your podcast next week. So here's his number. Uh, give him a call. Anyway, I've got to go, and <laughs> and and just it was just amazing. And 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 again, I feel so fortunate to now have developed some of these relationships all all because of this podcast. And and I can tell you right now, if you ever want to be entertained, you know, and I can only imagine. And one day, Gully, if you're listening to this, I'm going to come and see you. I'm going to take you out to dinner and and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to I'm going to listen I'm going to buy you some beers and I just want to I just want to hear as many stories as I can because your your ability to storytell really is incredible and again I just massively thank you for for bringing that to the podcast and our ne- the next one they want to talk about was actually set up through um, one of the players at our academy and moved away away slightly from tennis he is a tennis fan and he has spent his career reporting on tennis. David Walsh. Um, for those of you who don't know David Walsh, he's the journalist, the Sunday Times journalist, who is credited with helping to bring down the biggest cyclist in the world at that time, Lance Armstrong. David spent years looking to expose the truth about Lance, that he was in fact doping despite all of Lance's strong, strong, strong denials. And he's a great storyteller, David. He really took us through that journey and what it was like for him. David, it, it, it's so clear to, to see, you know, what you've described. There's such a good story around your values and what, what 
is important to you and, and how you got into that. But it's one thing to stick to those and stick to that way of doing it in a small town in Dublin, <laughs> taking on the taking on the head teacher. It's it's another thing to take on arguably the biggest sporting star in the world at that time on on something as serious as doping. You know, and 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 I guess the, the Lance Armstrong story, you know, we, we all know it. We we all know that you were the little troll that that chased him. Yeah. Uh, you know, how how were you able to to stay true to what you believed through what I would imagine was a very difficult time for you? Yeah. Um no, I, if I, I without wishing to be pernickety about this, um you, you say I was the little troll. That's not strictly true because what Lance called me was I was the little fucking troll. <laughs> and he was insistent upon he was always insistent upon my getting the full title. Yeah. And um, but it actually I everybody has said to me over the years, you know, it must have been such a difficult time. I never remembered it like that. Maybe it, okay. maybe there were times when it was, but I it's just not how I remember it. I remember it as being the time of my life. I remember it as feeling more alive during those years than I've ever felt since. And in a way, there's part of me that's always trying to to recreate how I felt then in my later journalistic life now. And how sure were you, Dave? I guess for you to for you to keep going and the like I say, if I'm right, the the Times got sued and, the, and it cost the Times yeah. a lot of money for for a time. So so I would imagine the weight's getting heavier as those things happen. How sure were you that that was the truth? And was it just about getting it out? I knew, like, guaranteed it was the truth. Okay. And I knew it from basically the first or second week of Lance's first Tour de France. Right, it okay. really was perfectly obvious. If I could take you back to the 99 Tour, which was the first that Lance won, and you'd been traveling with me in the car, and I've been saying, look, these are the factors that lead us to believe he's doping. Yep. And then these are the factors that will that would be used as a counter argument. Yep. And you put on one side reasons to believe this man is a cheat. On the other side, reasons to believe he's clean. Well, there's no contest. And you would have said, David, why is everybody not seeing this? Yep. This is perfectly obvious. And it really was. I mean, in 1998... Basically, the, the French government, as in the police, found EPO everywhere they looked at the Tour de France. So yeah. we know everybody in 1998 virtually, or most of the teams, yep. were using EPO. The only reason they would stop doing that in 99 was moral and ethical reasons. Yep. And there was no reason why they should all get moral or ethical, because there was no danger of being caught. There was no test for EPO. Yes. They yep. couldn't get caught. So you had to believe that they suddenly got a sense of righteousness. Now, there was no evidence that that had happened. And we were told before the 99 tour that the speeds would go down because people would be using less drugs. 99 tour was the fastest in history. You know, so and then there was Armstrong's kind of reaction to, to legitimate questions about, you know, whether doping could still be a part of the sport. He was aggressive. He was in denial. He, he was arrogant. He wouldn't, he wouldn't consider the possibility that some people might be doping. He would say to you, look, you're a journalist. Your job is to report 
on how brilliant all of the top guys are in this race. That's your job. No, your job is not to be asking questions. Your job is not to be skeptical. So my argument was, Lance, I'm definitely not buying this bullshit that yeah, yeah. you're trying to kind of um, feed us. And what, ha- what would happen, David, if he reached out to you to apologize? Well, he, he, certainly, won't, he certainly won't be reaching out to apologize. But, and I, I think he feels that I wronged him by focusing so much attention on him. I think that's his basic thing. And he would have seen the reaction to his fall because in a way, I mean, it's a crude description of where we were, but when he was winning the Tour de France's, it's like he and I were on a seesaw and he was up here and I was down right stuck on the bottom and I was kind of the bad guy. And then it began to turn and the kind of the seesaw started to get a little bit more level. I started to come up a little bit. He, people started wondering about him. And then he had his fall. And a consequence of he falling down was the other side of the seesaw goes up. Yeah. So he then is looking at and hearing people giving me credit for what I had done. Yeah. And that would have been incredibly hard for him because he's a very competitive person. You can't handle the truth. That's what always <laughs> jumps to my mind when I listen. I feel feel so fired up when I li- re- listen to that again. And like the stories he told again, you have to go back and listen to that, guys. If you if you haven't listened to to David Walsh, episode ninety six off the top of my head. If I'm wrong, please look in the podcast notes to hear that a, that a that a man has basically dedicated his life to to getting the truth. And and it, and he starts with an amazing story he tells back in his home little village in Ireland, and then moves that same values and morals and standards that he has moves all the way to let's be honest, Lance Armstrong was probably the biggest athlete in the world at that time, you know, with all of the oh, lives, he was he was massive live strong coming back from cancer, you know the multi multi million dollar deals with Nike. And he's just, he's gone at him. He's gone after him. He's made sure that he's got the truth out there. And I absolutely tip my hat to David. And I know my dad is a massive fan. He then sent a nice little message to me to send to my dad. But that has to be the comment of the year. Because he was looking at me saying, well, actually, we need to get the truth here, Dan. And I was thinking, oh, no, what have I said? I thought he was going to tell you off. Yeah, that's what it felt like. And I was like, oh, no, what have I said? And no, he didn't call me a little troll. He called me a little mm-mm-mm-mm troll. And he just, just brilliant. Just uh, loved every moment of that conversation, as with the rest. Uh, but what what a great comment. So moving on. So come on, the, the time's come, Vicky. You've bounced around. This is my favourite. And that actually, that one's my favourite. <laughs> Your favourite episode of 2021, Control the Controllables. Who is it? As of this minute, it is Captain Gully. Definitely. It had everything in there for me. Stories. I love, you know, it's my era, Sampras. I just, I loved all of hearing about that. John McEnroe. Um, I laughed a lot. I cried. It was, it just had everything for me. And I found that the most powerful episode of the year to date. Is it your number one 
of all time because last year it was Valerie Condos Field that you said was your number one. So has Captain Gully taken over? I think you're unnecessarily complicating things now. <laughs> I don't know. I For today, yes. I think he's my number one, followed by a very close second to Valerie Condos Field. But if I listen to Valerie again, I may say her because she was amazing. But what about you? Which one have you managed to narrow it down to one? Would it be sad if I agreed with you? Really? It's... I think it would be sad. And I think I think I'm not allowed to vote for Captain Gully for that reason, but he he would be right there for me. Uh, it, it, like I say, and even just reliving that moment there. Um for that moment alone, you know, like I say the storytelling, the the way that the way that the whole conversation went, um the way he made me feel as someone as part of that conversation uh, were, was really special. Um but I I have to give I think mine to Mark Petchy and Petch if you're again if you're listening very um self-deprivating in the way that he spoke about himself uh which I I I think isn't isn't right you know Petch you, you're doing incredible things as a as a commentator and also you were a top 100 tennis player in the world but I think there was just so many layers to the way that Mark Petchy spoke, you know, he's he's coming from the side of being a top hundred player himself. He's coming from the side of being head of men's tennis at the at the LTA. He's coming from the side of coaching Andy Murray. He's coming from the side of being a tennis parent. Two of his daughters are at Division One College right now, and then coming from the side of being one of the most famous commentators, tennis commentators in the world. And he, and he was just able for me to connect the dots and and the layers of the sport so incredibly well uh, the the consequences of one action and how that moves amongst the tennis industry i think he has a fantastic tennis intelligence and i'm sure intelligence as well and i i not that i was shocked because i was looking forward to that conversation a lot but i definitely left that conversation feeling like wow i've just really been a part of quite a special conversation and and learned an incredible amount and and again that is probably the one that got the most traction on social media as well. People talked about that one a lot. If you didn't listen to it, I, I promise you go back, re-listen to it or or listen listen to it for the first time. You'll come away feeling as if you are much more knowledgeable about the sport than you were before that started. So, Mark Petchy. Well, it is actually in the top five of the most listened to episodes of the year also. Um, we have the list. Do you want to know who has made the top five? I would love to. <laughs> so at five, Matt Little. No surprise there. In fact, I'm surprised he's not higher. Um, number four, Alistair Filmer, which again, not surprising after Emma's success um, in September. And just with four downloads more, so really close between the number three and number four, is Dr. Jim Lair who actually we haven't really mentioned much, but his episode was excellent. I haven't mentioned that one because I think I was so embarrassed about how my voice was during that episode. Oh my gosh, of course. It was awful. I remember spending 
I reckon we came back from holiday. I came back a, a, a night early from holiday because he'd given me this time slot. And he, this is some of the background you don't see in these podcasts. He'd actually, I remember the date. He gave me June the 4th and he had a, he had a, he had a time that he does, obviously does his podcasts. It was 11 o'clock in America. So that was, it worked out about seven o'clock here. And I was like, oh no, June the 4th. I'm sure there's something on. I've just arranged 10 people to come and do the British tennis special, grass court special. So I couldn't cancel all 10. So I said, sorry, doc, I can't do that time. So he said, June the 11th, 11 o'clock. America, Central Time America. So I was like, oh my God, we're on holiday. I can't cancel twice. I can't cancel Dr. Jim Lair, this amazing, world-famous, world-renowned sports psychologist. So I drove back from holiday a night early. And and those 12 hours of that day, I was drinking salt water. I was taking as many fraught pastels as I could to try and unblock my voice. I was trying not to talk. And none of it worked. And it, well, it, it, I got some noise out, which 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 earlier on the day there wasn't any noise at all. So I feel a little bit embarrassed about that. But however, Dr. Jim Lair was was incredible, was amazing, has again stories, has learnings, has so many of those things. So it does not surprise me, given his name and given his stature within the sport, that he comes in at number three. So come on, then so top two. They top two. people obviously had persevered because he speaks so well. They persevered with your awful, awful croakiness in that episode. I remember being like, no. Anyway, top two, number two, Mark Petchy. There you go. I th- I thought he would be high. Um, yeah, I've said all I need to say about about Petch, but he, an, an incredible episode. And number one, we should have drum roll sound effects. Anyone got any? Um, we'll get those for next year. Um, again, we have not talked about this one, which is crazy, really. But out and out, number one, he has actually pipped it, Dan Evans to the number one spot all time. So not just this year. And that is Louis Kaye. Again, I'm not surprised. You know, I think uh, it, it goes back to uh, if you look at that, they're all quite educational. You know, and I, and I think you know when we when we look at these podcasts, but I think education, energizing, and entertainment do go very closely in hand. But Louis Louis speaks, you learn. You know, and and, and I would as a resource for somebody <laughs> to sit there and learn about tennis for free. You know, to go and listen to Louis Kaya speak for an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, it came it came off the back of the Australian Open where the Brits had had some big success and to get Louis' insight into that insights and he was giving us match statistics from the men's doubles final and and as well as all the other amazing knowledge that Louis has. So it certainly is a very talkable episode. Sorry, Louis, if we didn't mention it today, but your top of 2021 downloads, but also the most downloaded podcast ever for Control the Controllables. And how long is that going to last as we go into 2022? Are we going to have some bigger names? Are we going to have more listeners? Who knows? We, we don't quite know what's going to happen. But what we do know is I think our energy, our enthusiasm for this remains. And are you, are you up for, for going again in 2022, Vicky? 
Well, I do think action one is for a dog sitter as well as a babysitter when we do these long episodes together. Apologies for our dog who has been barking like mad the entire time. We thought we got it sorted sending the children with my parents, but we forgot about the dog. He's just showing his appreciation for all of the amazing podcasts, but also you guys, the the listeners who who make this. You know, this is what it's what it's all about for us. The the comments, the likes, the ratings, the the questions, the emails, the connections, and there's many connections that we've made. You know, our performance director Carl Mize, after speaking to him on the podcast, that opened up conversations that's now led him to move his family to to Soto Grande and to Soto Tennis with Matt Little, one of the coaches that he was mentoring, has spent a couple of weeks out here at the at the academy and many of you have been out to see us as well. Please do come and see us in person. We love seeing you all. But if you're unable to, then send us a message, drop us an email. You know, you can get me at dan at sototennis.com or the more complicated one is ctc.podcast at sototennis.com or you can get us on any of the social media platforms under sototennis or CTC podcast on Instagram. We love hearing from you and we wish you all a very happy and healthy 2022. And my final question to you of 2021 is, are you going to continue with your control the controllables catchphrase? And at this point I get worried because you have the control over the edit here. So which which catchphrase is this? <laughs> I'll play it, I'll play it. So Paul Anacona, big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? 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 I very very good. I sound <laughs> I sound like a cheap man's joy from friends. You know, probably have much less of an impact on the females than Joy does on Friends <laughs> as well. But very good. But in all seriousness, as Dan said, thank you again for listening and wishing you all a safe and healthy 2022, first and foremost, and a happy and successful one too. And in the words of Nick Boliteri... So I say, grazie, baby. Ciao, ciao. <laughs>